Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for another day of life at all, but particularly for a Sabbath day of rest and worship, of fellowship and of service in your cause. Lord, now as we study these words, we would ask that you would send the Holy Spirit as you have promised to do to lead us into all truth. For we not merely want to be informed, we want to be transformed to become like Jesus. So to that end, Lord, bless us today, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Did Stephen say something wrong? To begin our study today, before we go to the experience of Stephen that we'll be getting to later on, I'd like to start with the life of Christ. Always the life of Christ is a great place to start any study of God's word. And we'll start in Matthew chapter 19 this time, the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 19, and we'll begin with verse 16. Here, Jesus has an encounter with a rich young ruler. Hopefully all of us are well familiar with this, but we're going to look at three different stories right back to back in the life of Jesus and through these different encounters, look for the common thread of the experience. First, the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, starting with verse 16. Scripture reads, Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? Verse 17, So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Now, to be clear, sometimes people get confused on this particular passage and say Jesus was saying that he wasn't God. No, what he was doing was testing that man's faith. Do you truly address me as the God who, uh, as God who sent me, right? The son of God. He goes on. But if you want to enter the life, keep the commandments. Well, he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love the, your neighbor as yourself. Now, verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Clearly, there was something in the heart of this young man that knew that, yes, I've been in a household of faith and I've been a commandment keeper my whole life, but something in me is obviously off. What do I still lack? And Jesus says to him in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, go sell all what you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Jesus invites the man to come follow me, but first sell what you have and give it away. And that's the rub in verse 22. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The rich young ruler, Jesus spoke to him clearly, invited him personally, and the man turned away. Let's look at another example. In John chapter 6, we were right there in Matthew, so turn to the right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, then John chapter 6. Now we're not going to look at everything we could in this chapter, but I find it fascinating what Jesus encounters here and how he deals with the people. In the beginning of John chapter 6, and there in verse 1, he, it opens up the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And Jesus literally gives them physical bread, meets their temporal needs. He basically does that disinterested, benevolent work of winning their hearts, right? And then after a, a little sliver of a miracle where Jesus walks on the sea, the next day, we pick up the story in verse 22, on the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had, had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone alone, However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. Now you get the context of the story. In the first part of John chapter 6, Jesus had been feeding the 5,000. They were all so filled and pleased that the next day they go seeking Jesus again. Now, it doesn't take a, a great theological mind to ascertain what their interest is. They got bread yesterday. What do they want today? Seconds. <laughs> They're looking for more. They want that daily bread, right? Well, after they find Jesus, notice what we find here in verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. 
Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures for everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because, the, because God the Father has set his seal on him. So now he's transitioning. You notice he's like, you are coming to me because of the physical bread. I'm now transitioning from the temporal to the eternal. We need to now talk about the bread of life. He's making that transition, right? Notice verse 35, Jesus is patently clear where Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Now you would think in our modern context, oh, beautiful, he's the bread of life. It's a well-known passage. But in that immediate context, they had just had food yesterday. They've sought after Jesus and found him now today for another serving of their daily bread. And Jesus now says, no food for you except me. I am the bread of life. And this starts a discussion and it gets more and more, well, perilous to the point that, in fact, verse 66 says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. He fed them food yesterday, they came for food today, and he says, no more temporal food, let's go to the eternal food. I am the bread of life. And friends, it didn't go over very well. When it says many of his disciples went back, how many were there yesterday? Some 5,000. And how bad does it get today? Look at the very next passage, verse 67. Then Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? Which seems to imply that that many was a great many, if not the vast majority. So much so that Jesus had to ask his core 12, are you going too? Let's look at one more example. Go to Matthew chapter 26, back to the left, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start in verse 6. Jesus is here anointed for his burial. Verse 6 says, And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leopard, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. What a, by the way, pious-sounding reason to discourage this act. But verse 10, when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them. Now notice, it doesn't say he drew them away privately to reprimand them gently. It seems very clear that right then and there, on the spot, Jesus called out their hypocrisy. When Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For he has, she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. And he rebuked his disciples right then and there. Interestingly, the very next thing that scripture records after that story in verse 14 now, then one of the 12, one of those disciples, Jesus just chastened, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. Now notice verse 16 very carefully. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Apparently it had been in his back of his mind at some point, but there was a tipping point in the experience of Judas that that rebuke in front of everyone hardened his heart and made his decision. Each of these vignettes from the ministry of Jesus recounts a time when people turned away from him. Thus, from these three stories, we must ask the almost unthinkable question. 
Did Jesus make a mistake in his dealings with people? Mm. Should he have required such a sacrifice from the rich young ruler? He didn't even ask his own disciples that. They voluntarily left everything. He just said, follow me. But for this one, he said, sell everything, then follow me. Why did he up the stakes? Why did he set the cost so high? And with the crowd that turned away in John chapter 6, after the feeding of the 5,000, shouldn't he have understood their mistaken notions of the Messiah? I mean, we talked about this. Even his own family didn't understand. We saw later that John the Baptist still didn't even understand the nature of his, uh, of his true ministry. Even when Jesus was departing after his resurrection, his disciples still didn't have the right conception of his ministry. So is it really their fault that they didn't understand who he was? Maybe if he had treated them a little bit differently, maybe a little more gently, maybe more delicately confront their confusion than just denying them bread? And what about poor Judas? Didn't Jesus know the fierce battle raging within his unconverted disciple? Perhaps if he would have chastened him just a little more gently or called him aside to speak to him privately. Could Jesus have averted his own betrayal? Of course, to all of these suggestions, we rightfully respond, absolutely not. Jesus always did what was best in every circumstance and never failed to fully reflect the glory of God. The self-evident fact is that when those people turned away from Jesus, it was their fault and not his. Now, why is this the case that some people, given the opportunity, will even with Jesus himself turn away from the grace that's being extended? To help answer this, let's go back to Luke chapter 8. We made reference to this yesterday morning. Today we're going to look at it specifically in Scripture. Luke chapter 8, Jesus gives the well-known parable of the sower. And the story picks up in verse 4 of Luke chapter 8. It says, And when a great multitude had gathered and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And if you skip down to verse 11, Jesus decodes the symbols of this parable. He says in verse 11, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the, the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should be believe and be saved. Verse 13, but the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among the thorns are those who, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and pleasures of life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Now, Many sermons have been preached and a great number of lessons can be drawn from this particular parable of Jesus. But for our purposes today, a few lessons stand out in my mind as particularly pertinent. First of all, if you noticed, there is only one variable that determined the quality of the harvest. Notice it was the same sower for every different hearer. 
right? So he didn't say a team of sowers went out and this one had this technique and that one had that technique and this one was more public and this was more personal or this was more digital or this. No, I don't know that digital is a biblical term, but you understand what I'm saying. It's the same sower in every instance, right? Number one, one constant is the sower. The next constant is the seed. It's the same seed, right? It's not like he sowed the word of God here and then he sowed personal opinions here and then he sowed this over here or that over there. No, no, no. It was the same sower sowing the same seed. Also, by implication, we can ascertain that he sowed the same seed the same way. So you have the same sower sowing the same seed the same way, yet vastly different outcomes. Okay, so what makes the difference? The only variable in the whole parable is the condition of the heart. Of the four examples mentioned, by the way, because that's why we talked about the condition of the heart is so prime, is so, uh, pr- such a premium, such an issue, because that's where everything starts, right? But notice, notice this also. And it just, I don't know, maybe people have seen this for years and I'm just coming late to the party. But it wasn't that terribly long ago at all that as I was reviewing this parable, the thought struck me that here is Jesus talking about the work of soul saving, giving the seed of the word of God to the whole world. And he gives multiple examples of how it might go. And if you notice, of the four different types that happened, three of them didn't work. Now, I don't know if you appreciate that like I do, but I like a good testimony of failure. I know that seems a little, we, we like to talk about testimonies and sometimes I've been in testimony services and it almost becomes a spiritual one-upmanship. Yes, well, you found your car keys, but my found a whole car and this one, <laughs> whatever, it goes on and on. And we always want to hear the next big thing. But if you notice, the word of God is different. The word of God not only tells us all the good things that happen, but also includes the bad things. Yes. It not only tells us all the accolades of the heroes, but also their downfalls and their shortcomings, their struggles, their vicissitudes, the temptations, the failures alongside the successes, right? And here in Luke chapter 8, Jesus wasn't even just telling a story. He was making up something to make sure we understood the process in our minds. And yet most of what he described didn't work. I find that fascinating. Now, each one works a little better. That's also an interesting thing too, right? But at the end, only one of those crops produced a harvest. We shouldn't be surprised then if in most of the work we do in laboring for Christ appears to, or in reality truly does, fail of meeting the success we intend. Let that sink in, friends. Christ himself taught that most of our work won't succeed as we'd like it to. And he does not say, therefore, the lesson is farming doesn't work. No. He just said, this is the reality in the world. This is what you're going to face. You're going to have people respond this way. People respond this way. People respond this way. People respond this way. But your job isn't determined which will work. Your job is simply go to work. Mm. I'm reminded of this passage from Christian Service, page 264. The good seed may for a time lie unnoticed in a cold, selfish, worldly heart, giving no evidence that it has taken root. But afterwards, as the Spirit of God breathes on the soul, the hidden seed springs up and at last bears fruit to the glory of God. In our life work, we know not which shall prosper, this or that, which of course is taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 11, where the agricultural metaphor is employed again to talk about, don't just wait till everything is just right. You sow your seed and let the uh, results lie with God. She says, we do not know which shall prosper, this or that. This is not a question for us to settle. We are to do our work and leave the results with God. Praise the Lord for that admonition, that encouragement, actually, from Scripture, from the spirit of prophecy. But let's come back to that. Why is it? Now, we understand that the heart and the condition of the the heart 
is a preparation for the reception of gospel truth. We understand that concept now. But even if we've done that heart work, even if we've done our best to do what God has asked us to do, why is it that some people just aren't interested in spiritual things or choose, as is in the case with the rich young ruler or those in John chapter 6, the many who decided not to follow him anymore? Why does some evangelistic work succeed and why does some evangelistic work fail? To understand this, I would submit to you that redemption requires three distinct and essential steps. Hear me out. The transformation of a life is always, always occurs, I should say, in three distinct sequential steps. Number one, you must be convinced of the truth. Number two, you must be convicted by the truth. And number three, you must be converted Amen. by the truth. Amen. And it works like this every single time. When men and women are presented with Bible truth, the Holy Spirit convinces the mind. The word of God is living and powerful and it demonstrates, it self-authenticates the reality that this is true. Number one. Now, as soon as your mind understands that what's being presented is true, automatically, because we are holistic beings, our heart is connected to that mind, right? So, for instance, I've heard people ask the question, why do we start all of our public presentations of, you know, evangelistic seminars or even personal Bible studies, why do they always seem to start with Daniel chapter 2? Wouldn't you rather talk about the gospel? Well, here's the trick of what happens, right? When you walk through Daniel chapter two, we think we're conveying the truth about a metal man, right? An ancient dream that outlined the history of the world. And we think from our perspective, why be so clinical? Why be so like a mechanical? Why not be alive with the gospel and the love of Jesus? Well, here's the thing that's gonna happen. When people start hearing the truth and they recognize there was a Daniel who did live then and there, who spoke about Babylon, then Medo-Persia, then Greece, and, then Rome, and that Rome didn't fall, but it was divided. And that brings us down to our time. It doesn't, we think we're still talking about a metal man, but those people are having an encounter with Jesus Christ. They're recognizing, whoa, 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 whoa. So you're telling me that this is true and this is true and, and they're connecting the dots from the head to the heart saying, if that's true, then I'm here and he's real and I... Amen. Right? There's something working. They're being convinced of the truth and immediately upon understanding the word of God, it goes to the heart and they're convicted that it applies to them. Because what they're taking away is Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided Rome. Here we are in the very toenails of time. Jesus is coming soon. God is real and he is my judge. Now, I've gone from temporal to spiritual. Now there's a, accountability. Now there's a reality to what I thought was merely mythology. When that switch goes from mythology to reality, that's the jump from convincing to convicting. But let me tell you something else. Conversion does not consist merely of being convinced of the truth or even feeling the conviction of the truth. There's that third essential step where you yield your will to that truth, to the God of truth, and conversion takes place. You know, over and over in the ministry of Jesus, he encountered otherwise brilliant people who as soon as the truth of what Jesus was saying and the application of it came to their own hearts, they would very quickly become uncomfortable in the situation and try to deflect and obfuscate and turn away and hedge. And, and, and Let me give you just a couple examples. Go to Luke chapter 10. You're already in the gospel of Luke. Just go over to two pages to Luke chapter 10. 
Look in verse 25. It says, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? By the way, this is not attorney at law, Esquire, like we think of today. This is a lawyer in the biblical sense. He was a, a, a specialist in the word of God, right? So Jesus says, you know the word, you tell me. What must I do? It's all written down. You're a scholar in it. What is your reading of it? Verse 27. So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Time out, we don't have time to get into this, but did you know there's not a single passage in the Old Testament that has that entire phrasing in there? What this man has done is taken two passages from two different books of Moses and synthesized them into a single answer that says, the love of the Lord your God and your neighbor as yourself. Friends, if you were to look through the study of the New Testament, you would find that other times when Jesus was asked this very question, he didn't defer the answer to someone else. He gave it himself and it was exactly word for word the same answer. This man didn't just answer a good answer. He answered the best answer. He gave, in fact, the Jesus' own answer. Thus, when Jesus responds to him, verse 28, he said to him, you have answered rightly. And he, maybe he would just, have, if he was us, he would say, good job, well answered. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. <laughs> but he adds something else. He said, you have answered rightly, comma, do this and you will live. What was the problem? The man was convinced of the truth, but Jesus knew he wasn't converted to doing it, right? So he calls him out. He says, now, not only is this true, but it's you need to do something about it. Do this and live. But verse 29, but he, comma, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Time out. This man has already evidenced his knowledge of the word of God. He's already demonstrated not only to have a good answer, but to have the best answer, the Jesus answer to the question. His knowledge base is sound. Yet when Jesus comes back with a simple, well done, now just go do it. This otherwise brilliant man comes up with this, well, I don't know what, Ridiculous question. I, I mean, who is my, I mean, Lord, I would do, but the problem is I can't figure out and I don't know where and I don't know who and I don't know. It's a, the implication being, if I could only figure out who my neighbor is, I would go and do likewise. But, but the Bible tells us why he asked that other, that silly question. And he, comma, wanting to justify himself said, and who is my neighbor? I would submit to you, friends, that he knew exactly who his neighbor was. He just didn't like it. <laughs> he knew the truth. He also recognized that it applied to him. But he wasn't ready to yield to that truth and put into practice what he knew to be right. Sometimes I call this what we know as the parable of the Good Samaritan. I call it the unnecessary parable. <laughs> This man already knew who his neighbor was. And after Jesus walks him through like a children's story, there was one time this man and these other men were not, you know, he goes through it. Look at the end of the parable. Verse 36, Jesus asked him again, so which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Remember the question is, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, all right, we listen to the story. Now you tell me who was the neighbor And he said, he who showed mercy on him. And Jesus comes right back to the same point they already had. Then he said to him, go and do likewise. You see the same kind of silliness coming out of the mouth of Nicodemus, a Sanhedrin leader, right? He comes to have that midnight interview with Jesus. And Jesus cuts right to the quick and says, no, no, you need to be born again. And then when that conviction comes to his heart, what does he do? He comes up with silly, obscure, uh, ridiculous questions, right? Well, how can a man be born again? Am I supposed to go back in my mother's womb? I don't know. She would say things like, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? I'm talking about spiritual truth. You know what I'm talking about. In fact, go to John chapter 3. If you're in the Gospel of Luke, just go to the right. One book, John chapter 3. Notice how Jesus lays the case to Nicodemus, and it's an issue of the heart. Verse 19, 
John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world. Here it is. And men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The reason they don't accept the light isn't because they don't understand it, nor is it because they don't see the application in their lives. They just don't like where it's going. Because if I go that way, that's going to take me away from this thing that I like to do over here. And men love darkness rather than light. It's an issue of love. Where is your heart? For everyone, verse 20, practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. That's the real issue. You can be convinced of the truth. You can be convicted by the truth and still not be converted. For the rest of our time, I want to look at two particular stories in Scripture. Both found in the book of Acts. We'll start with Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, very well-known passage about the day of Pentecost. Many sermons have been preached about this. And we don't have time to get into all the context of this particular message. But this is only 50 days after the events of the death of Jesus and his resurrection on that Sunday morning. And the same people who were in the crowd that day chanting things like, crucify him, crucify him, let his blood be on us and on our children, are now back in Jerusalem for the next feast, which is known as the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. But on this feast, Peter is now fully converted. The Holy Spirit has been poured out and he preaches a message. My, does he preach a message. Now, in fact, at this point, I want to submit an idea here that may not be popular for at least for a few minutes till I explain it. And it is this. I believe that the Seventh-day Adventist Church should be more Pentecostal. Amen. Let me explain. <laughs> now, when we say that term Pentecostal, the picture that often comes to our mind is what's commonly known today as Pentecostalism, right? And this picture of, you know, very demonstrative praise and worship with loud music, right? Or you might have faith healings or speaking in unintelligible tongues, right? Holy roller, the whole thing, right? But let me ask you some questions. What we know today as Pentecostalism is not actually found in the day of Pentecost. For example, how much mention of music is made on the day of Pentecost? None. Now, that's not to say they didn't sing some hymns or something. We don't know. But clearly it wasn't the central thing that moved the church because it didn't even make it into the Bible record. How about um, faith healings? None. Now, maybe there were people healed. Healing is a genuine gift of the Spirit. Praise the Lord. But there's no mention of it on the day of Pentecost. They didn't have some big healing service and people were slain. And, no, it wasn't happen. How about speaking in unintelligible tongues? No. Now, there was speaking in tongues, but it was intelligible, right? The Bible goes out of its way to even list the languages and countries where they were from, right? So what made the day of Pentecost so powerful was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of present truth. Peter opened his mouth and he preached a sermon that day. 26 verses. 13 of them were just quotes from the Old Testament. Prophecies leading up to the Messiah as he now understood him, right? 11 of those verses were just commentary about the verses he had just quoted, and the final two were just an appeal. And look at the appeal Peter makes. My goodness, verse 36. By the way, let me go back to verse 32 to demonstrate it was present truth. Jesus was not just preached that he was born in a manger. He didn't just talk about the good life of Jesus that he lived. He didn't just talk about his death or even his resurrection. Look at verse 32. This Jesus, who God has raised up uh, this Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So notice he, even the resurrection at this point was old news and well known to those people. Here's the next part. Therefore, being what? Exalted to the right hand of, uh, to, exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out that which you now see and hear. He said, what you're seeing now is the work of Jesus in the heavenly sanctuary at the right hand of God. He was preaching present truth of Christ and his work in the heavenly sanctuary. Accompanied by the Holy Spirit's power, that message moves people. Amen. Therefore, verse 36, let all the house of Israel know assuredly. Now think of our three steps. Know assuredly. They need to be convinced from Scripture that Jesus is the Messiah. 
know assuredly that God has made this Jesus. Now let's go to the convicting part, comma, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now notice it wasn't just speaking of Jesus in abstract, generic uh, 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 terms that might be separate from them. He said, no, 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 that Jesus we just learned is true, you killed. It was a present truth message with a pointed personal appeal. Now look very carefully at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut, where? To the heart. They are convinced of the truth he's presenting. They're convicted that that truth applies particularly to them. But at this moment, are they converted? Not yet. There's one more step, right? Watch this now. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? How do I take the convincing and the convicting and evidence it with converting? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I don't know if my reading of this is off, but I think verse 39 is particularly beautiful. Remember, these are the people who said, crucify him and let his blood be on us and on whom? Our children. Now verse 39 of Acts 2. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Goes on in verse 41 to say that those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Beautiful story. Let's go to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 2 is a story of success, right? He convinced them from Scripture. He made a direct appeal to their hearts. And by the power of God, they were converted when they repented and were baptized. Beautiful story. Acts chapter 7, a very, very similar story, but a vastly different outcome. If you read through Acts chapter 7, you essentially have Stephen, who is a lay member of the church, one of the first appointed deacons, and is now called to answer for his faith in Jesus Christ before the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day. And if you were to compare the message that Stephen presented that day with what Peter presented in Acts chapter 2, they're very, very similar. He walks them through the history of their own people using Bible evidence to demonstrate the veracity of his claims. And then he makes a specific application to his audience. Okay? By the way, he's also talking about the heavenly sanctuary. Start with verse 44. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling, a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. So he's going through the history of the sanctuary, the tabernacle, or as they had it at this day now, the temple, right? It started with Moses. It went to the promised land. David wanted to build him a house, but Solomon built him the temple. By the way, these people loved the temple, didn't they? Right? This is meeting them where they are. It's exactly, but then he makes a transition from the temporal temple that they know and love to the spiritual temple that God wants to have a focus on. Verse 48, however... The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? So he's taking their minds from the earthly sanctuary to the heavenly sanctuary, and apparently that was a bridge too far. Now we don't, have a film adaptation of this. We don't have the insights exactly to know what happened, but clearly something happened right then and there. Because look at verse 51. Stephen says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit 
as your fathers did, so do you. Now we know what's about to happen to Stephen just a few verses from now. And the burden of our question this morning, did Stephen say something wrong? Was he too pointed? Was he too direct? Was he too, uh, too clear with Bible truth? Should he have hit his light a little bit more obscurely so it to lead them more gently along the way? I would submit to you that everything was going well to the point at least they were able to listen to what he was saying until he took that temple on earth and went to the temple in heaven. And I don't know what they showed on their faces or their body language or if they started picking up rocks, you know, but clearly something happened that he said, you know what, I need to cut the rest of the sermon short. Let me go straight to the appeal. <laughs> Time was up on his countdown clock, if you will. And he just laid the lumber to it. <laughs> you stiff-necked. Was anything he's saying untrue, by the way? No. no. He was saying, by the way, what did Peter say? This same Jesus whom you crucified is now both Lord and Christ. That Jesus who you thought was just a man is now God in the heavens and he holds your hand, life in his hands. It's the same message, the same appeal. In fact, he goes on in verse 52. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. It's identically the same message as what Peter said to the people on the day of Pentecost. Verse 54. Look carefully at the response. When they heard these things, they were what? Cut to the heart. Pause right here. Were they convinced that what he was saying was true? Yes, yes they were. Were they convicted that that truth applied particularly to them? Yes, yes they were. Third question, were they converted? No. no. Friends, I would submit to you it's possible to be convinced of the truth, to even feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your heart and still not be converted. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. I love that verse 55 does not say, and he laid down his life at that. No, he wasn't done. He's going to preach until either they're converted or he's buried. Yes. Right? He said, there's only one way out of this. I'm just still going straight ahead. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, by the way, don't ever think that, you know, Stephen went off the rails and kind of put his own personality into it. No, he was still being led by the Holy Spirit, even in that sharp rebuke. Full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. The very same message that Peter preached. There's Jesus in the heavens at the right hand of God. And you can almost picture the Moses in the wilderness with the serpent brazen on the stick. And he said, just look and live. He's literally just standing there. Just look. Verse 57, And they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. Notice this. They start speaking back to the preacher. Yeah, I don't know if it's even coherent, but they're just making noises. La, 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 right? And they're literally physically blocking the sound waves from hitting their ear canal so that they can hold off that power. And they ran at him with one accord. We don't have time for this sermon either, but by the way, the results of Acts 2 and Acts 7 were that everyone was in one accord. God wants to bring us into unity when we receive the word and Satan will bring us into unity when we reject the word. At the end of the day, the question remains though, did Stephen say something wrong? I would emphatically say no. His audience was convinced that what he was saying was true and they, according to scripture, were cut to the heart that it applied to them. The only difference between the people in Acts 2 and those in Acts 7 
was the folks on the day of Pentecost yielded to the Spirit and received the word, while the folks in Acts 7 resisted the Spirit and rejected the word. We're living in the very last days of Earth's history. And Scripture has told us that we will witness in the world this type of willful, active ignorance in the last days of earth's history. Listen to this from 2 Peter chapter 3. He speaks of how scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they, you know the phrase, willfully forget. Notice that they're not uninformed. They're trying to take something that's in their head and push it back out. They willfully forget that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. They don't like where the truth leads, so they are, quote, willfully ignorant of what it says. The Apostle Paul, speaking to his protege, Timothy, and I believe speaking to us today, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Please take a look at that passage again. Notice they have no problem being taught as long as they get to set the curriculum. Right? It doesn't say they'll leave the church. It says they'll leave your church. They want to be taught they want their ears to be scratched. They like what they want to like, right? But when it comes to preaching truth, present truth, cutting truth, convincing truth, convicting truth, they don't want to hear it. Thus you read in 2 Timothy chapter 3, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. And we think of the perils of the last days. We often think of earthquakes and disasters and pestilences and wars and all kinds of things, which are true. But even Jesus said, these are just the beginnings of sorrows, right? The end is still not yet. But here he's speaking of the very last days. He said, in the last days, perilous times will come. And he's not talking about, he's not talking about the condition of the physical world or ecology or economy or even military. He's talking about character. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now watch this, having a form of what? Godliness. They're going to do all of this in an otherwise Christian context. They might even have the label of Christianity. They might be in a country that espouses Christian values or makes you know, statements and slogans and logos and whatever, all about good Jesus-y type stuff. But at the end of the day, what's going on in their heart? They're unthankful, they're unholy, they're unloving, they're unforgiving, they're disobedient to parents, despisers, all down the list. You know, oftentimes whenever someone doesn't understand a message in a preaching context or even a personal Bible studies, we think, you know what they need is more texts. <laughs> they need to understand that this, so we take them to the Sabbath. And, you know, honestly, the Sabbath is so clear in Scripture. You start from Genesis, you go all the way through Revelation, all points in between. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. We're going to be keeping the Sabbath in eternity. You go on and on and on, right? And if someone has an objection to the Sabbath, we often think, oh, they haven't heard this text or that. But the reality is they probably understand exactly what you're saying. And they're convicted that it applies to them. The issue is a matter of the heart. Men love darkness because their deeds are evil. That's the issue. Jesus saw it in his ministry. Stephen saw it in his ministry. And I believe that's why Jesus in Luke chapter 8, when he described the work of sowing the seed of the word of God, said that most of it won't work the way we want it to. 
Now, praise the Lord, there will also be seeds sown that we won't ever see the results, but there will be results to the positive. Amen? But regardless, God joins upon us. He requires of us a service regardless of whether it appears to be successful or not. You see, the work of the Holy Spirit is to take the truth of God's word and like a sword, a sharp two-edged sword, apply it in such a way that we are cut to the heart and convicted, but conviction alone does not save. One's response to the prompting of the Holy Spirit determines whether they're converted. Thus, in our work of personal evangelism, let us not withhold the word of God for fear of saying something wrong. While we, of course, want to be as winsome as possible and Christ-like as he enables us, the ultimate decision to yield to the work of the Holy Spirit is always an individual one. Friends, we are not responsible for the conversion of any soul. However, we are responsible to have the conversation with every soul. In the words of that great old hymn, let us then be true and faithful trusting, serving every day because just one glimpse of him in glory will the trials of life repay. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer as we close today. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for in your infinite wisdom entrusting to us the co-laboring work of soul saving with you. And Lord, help us to learn deeply from the experience of Christ, from the record of scripture, from the insights from the spirit of prophecy so we can do your work your way. And Lord, we want to be winsome. We want to be genial. We want to be warm and welcoming, hospitable. We want to clear every obstacle out of the way. But Lord, we also see from your own testimony and the examples of early church leaders That even if we do everything right, it still may not work out the way we expect. Please, Lord, help us to never become discouraged or distracted or dissuaded from doing the work you've given us to do. But let us be true and faithful, trusting, serving every day. To that end, Lord, we dedicate ourselves once again and we ask that you would make us laborers for you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.